Hi, I'm Samantha. Hi, I'm Sarah. And, and we, we are, are the, the Doom, Doom Crew. Damn you! Hey nerds, welcome back. I'm Samantha. Today, I'd love to tell you a story that I first heard on My Favorite Murder, and it's about a black widow. And I'm going to talk about a teenage romance gone bad. All right, I'm going to go first. Um, There are trigger warnings. Check the show notes for those. Belle Gunnis was born on November 11th, 1859 in Norway to Paul and Barrett Storseth. She was the youngest of eight children. Ugh! I know, there's always so many kids. I mean, back then they didn't have birth control, did they? I was the 1800s, so I'm going to go with no. No. Yeah. Birth control was uh, pull out. (laughs) We all know how great that works. Yeah. At age 14 in 1873, Belle began working for neighboring farms by milking and herding cattle. An Irish TV documentary by Anne Barrett Vestby from 2006 tells a common but unverified story about her early life. The story says that in 1877, Belle attended a country dance while pregnant. Oh. Yeah. There, she was attacked by a man who kicked her in the abdomen, causing her to miscarry the child. The man who came from a rich family was never prosecuted by the Norwegian authorities. According to people who knew her, her personality changed markedly. The man who attacked her died shortly afterward, and his cause of death was said to be stomach cancer. Good. The next year... The next year, Belle started working on a large, wealthy farm and worked there for three years to help pay for a move to America, where she planned on joining her older sister, Nellie, in Chicago. She moved to the United States in 1881. When she was processed by immigration at Castle Garden, she changed her first name to Belle from her more... Norwegian given name that I did not even attempt to pronounce. I appreciate that. Yeah. I would have laughed at you. Yeah, it's it wouldn't have been great. I tried a couple of times and I was like, I'll embarrass myself. We're going to go with Belle because that's how we know her anyway. Okay. So she changed her name to Belle and then from Castle Garden traveled to Chicago. And there when she lived with her sister and brother-in-law, she worked as a domestic servant and then got a job at a butcher's shop cutting up animal carcasses. Ugh. Yeah. No, thank you. No, thank you. Standing six feet tall and weighing over 200 pounds, Belle Gunnis was a physically strong and imposing woman. Dear God. Yep. No holds barred. No secrets in this story. Uh, She may have killed both of her husbands and all of her children on different occasions. Her apparent motives involved collecting life insurance cash and other valuables and also eliminating witnesses oh my god reports estimate that she killed between 25 and 40 people over a series of decades holy shit yeah so we're just going to start at the beginning with her first victim are you got you got 25 victims to tell me about today not 
I mean, I am going to list out all of her like suspected known victims, but they don't all have an in-depth story. That's insanity. Okay, I'm ready. Yeah. I'm prepared. First victim. In 1884, Belle married Mads Sorensen in Chicago, Illinois, where two years later they opened a candy store. The business was not successful, and within a year, the shop mysteriously burned down. Okay. They collected the insurance money, which paid for a home. Though some researchers say that Belle and Mads didn't have any children, other investigators report four children, and they also have a census confirming that they had four children. Um, Caroline, Axel, Myrtle, and Lucy. Caroline and Axel died in infancy, allegedly of acute colitis. Now, the symptoms of acute colitis, which are nausea, fever, diarrhea, and lower abdominal pain and cramping, are also symptoms of many forms of poisoning. Poisoning. Yep. Both Caroline's and Axel's lives were reportedly insured and the insurance company paid out to the couple. On June 13th, 1900, Gunnis and her family were counted on the United States Census in Chicago, like I mentioned, and in addition to their four children, they claimed an adopted 10-year-old girl identified possibly as Morgan Couch, but apparently later known as Jenny Olson. Okay. Yes. So they had adopted a 10-year-old somehow. And her name maybe used to be Morgan, but was later Jenny Olson. Yeah. Okay. So Mads Sorensen had purchased two life insurance policies. And on July 30th of 1900, both policies were active at the same time because one was expiring that day and one started that day. According to Belle, oh God, Mads came home with a headache from work that day, and she gave him some quinine powder for the headache. When she checked on him a bit later, he had died. It was determined that Mads had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and subsequently died. Now, the Sorensen's family doctor had been treating Mads for an enlarged heart, and he concluded that the death had been caused by heart failure. An autopsy was considered unnecessary because the death was not thought suspicious. Oh, my God. She applied for the insurance money the day after the funeral. Sorensen's relatives claimed that Gunnis had poisoned her husband to collect on the insurance. Surviving records suggest that an inquest was ordered. It is unclear, however, whether the investigation actually occurred or whether Mads' body was ever exhumed to check for arsenic as his relatives demanded. The insurance companies awarded her somewhere between $4,000 and $8,500. I saw different figures, but the $8,500 would be like getting $250,000 in today's money. At least. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, you're welcome. I tried to do that wherever, like, money was mentioned because this was so long ago. Um, But honestly, the inflation calculators only go back to 1914. So, like, the difference between 1900 and 1914, I don't know. But, like, this one came out to, like, 247. So, I'm like, okay, well, it was at least 250 then. Okay. I mean, that's pretty fucking close. Yeah, exactly. Good enough for me. Thank you. 
Uh, so with that money, she bought a pig farm on the outskirts of Laporte, Indiana. In 1901, Belle purchased a house on McClung Road, and that was her pig farm. It was reported that both the boathouse and the carriage houses burned to the ground shortly after she acquired the property. Did she have insurance out on those properties? She sure did, Sarah. Oh, I'm so surprised. Right? As she was preparing to move from Chicago to Laporte, she became reacquainted with a recent widower, Peter Gunnis. Mm. So her name wasn't Gunnis before this, but, um, like, that's her married name. Got you. Yeah. Again, I unfortunately cannot pronounce her original name, so going with the one that I know. Okay. Got it. So Peter Gunnis was also Norwegian-born, so they had that in common. They were married in Laporte on April 1st, 1902. Just one week after the ceremony, Peter's infant daughter died of uncertain causes while alone in the house with Belle. Oh my God, this is his, this is, so with his wife who had passed, he, she may have died during childbirth probably. That's just an assumption on my part. Yeah, I have I don't no know clue. Why. Yeah, I don't know why I went there, but that's where my mind went. Um, then... Honestly, it's because he was a recent widower, and this is an infant daughter, so it's very likely that you're right, and she died in um, giving birth. Oh, my God. Okay. Yeah. So in December of 1902, Peter himself met with a tragic accident. According to Belle, he was reaching for his slippers next to the kitchen stove when he was scalded with brine. She later declared that, in fact, part of a sausage grinding machine fell from a high shelf, causing a fatal head injury. Okay. A year later, Peter's brother Gust took Peter's older daughter, Swanhilda, to Wisconsin. She is the only child to have survived living with Belle. Okay. This yeah. is so sad. Okay. Yeah. So Peter's death netted Bell another three thousand to four thousand dollars. And in today's money that's anywhere from ninety thousand to a hundred and twenty thousand. So not as much. Not as much, yeah. This okay. guy didn't have two policies at once. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Local people refused to believe that her husband could be so clumsy. He had run a hog farm on the property and was known to be a very experienced butcher. And so the district coroner actually reviewed the case and unequivocally announced that he had been murdered. He convened a coroner's jury to look into the matter. And meanwhile, Jenny Olson, that girl they had adopted, she was now 14. And she was overheard confessing to a classmate my mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. Oh my God. Don't tell a soul. My mama killed my papa. Sounds like a country song. Yeah. Well, Isn't that a, like, yeah. sorry, a Garth Brooks song? But it's Papa Kill Mama? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes, absolutely. I was like, hang on. Yes, you're right. Um, so Jenny was actually brought before the cor- coroner's jury, but denied having made that remark at all. Bell on the other hand, convinced the coroner that she was innocent of any wrongdoing. She didn't mention that she was pregnant, which would have inspired sympathy, but in May of 1903, a baby boy, Philip, joined the family. Okay, of course he did. 
Yeah. In late 1906, Bell told neighbors that her foster daughter, Jenny Olson, had gone away to Lutheran College in Los Angeles. In fact, Jenny's body would be later found buried on Bell's property. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Between 1903 and 1906, Bell continued to run her farm. In 1907, Bell hired a single farmhand, Ray Lamphere, to help with chores. So we're getting to the part that is the only funny part of this whole story. And uh, this is when Bell started putting ads uh, in papers um, around Chicago. And this was just like a want ad, but in the matrimonial columns. Oh, my God. Okay, okay. Uh-huh. So not only Chicago, but other large Midwestern cities, okay? Here is what her ad said. Personal. Comely widow who owns large farm in one of the finest districts in LaPorte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with a view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Oh, oh my God. Need not apply? Triflers need not apply. It's like my favorite quote. I feel like so I want to put up. that on a shirt. Uh, MFM has shirts that say triflers need not apply. Of course they do. Yeah. I'm obsessed. That is the reason I like this case. The case is fucking horrible. But Travelers But that personal ad, that is bold. I only aspire to be... That's what I should put on my dating profile. Triflers need not apply. Oh, I meant from the beginning. Personal, comely, uh, divorcee, I guess, owns single-family home in (laughs) one of the newest districts in Hunt County, Texas. Desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well provided with a view of joining fortunes. No replies by text considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit in a public place. Triflers <laughs> need not apply. Boom. I would, I would hit up that ad. Yeah, I might be changing my, my Tinder, Hinge, whatever the hell I'm on these days. I don't know what you're on. I don't either. I mean, I'm technically on all of them, but I don't check it very often. All right. Well, several middle-aged men of means responded to Bell's ad. Shut up. Yes. Oh, my God. Okay. One of these was John Moe, who arrived from Elbow Lake, Minnesota. He He had traveled that far. Girl. Okay, okay. Girl. okay, Okay. Yeah. He brought more than $1,000, which is about thirty grand today, and he brought it with him to pay off her mortgage, or so he told her neighbors, and Belle introduced him as her cousin. Oh, snap! Oh, snap! <laughs> all right, all right. Right? Okay. He disappeared oh, from fuck. her farm within a week, within a week of his arrival. Next came George Anderson from Tarkio, Missouri. Missouri? Missouri, who, like Peter Gunnis and John Moe, was an immigrant from Norway. During dinner with George, she raised the issue of her mortgage. George agreed that he would pay this off if they decided to wed. 
Late that night, Anderson awoke to see her standing over him, holding a guttering candle in her hand and with a strange, sinister expression on her face. Without uttering a word, she ran from the room. George Anderson fled from the house, (laughs) soon taking a train to Missouri. (laughs) But he fucking did. Yeah, right? Like, no fucking thank you. I'm sorry. I stay the night and all of a sudden you're standing over Over me me? with the fucking candle and smiling. I'm out. (laughs) This is why I'm single. (laughs) Well, if someone, that's not a reason to be, that is a reason. Poor, poor George Anderson. Same experience, man. <laughs> you stand over people with candles and smile. No, I meant they're getting... I'm being stared at. Oh, God. Obviously kidding, but funny nonetheless. The suitors kept coming, but none except for Anderson ever left the Gunnis farm. By this time, she'd begun ordering huge trunks to be delivered to her home. Hack driver Clyde Sturgis delivered many such trunks to her from Laporte and later remarked how the heavyset woman, rude, by the way, would lift these enormous trunks like boxes of marshmallows, he said. (laughs) (laughs) Tossing them onto her wide shoulders. Again, rude, sir. And carrying them into the house. She kept the shutters of her house closed day and night. Farmers traveling past the dwelling at night saw her digging in the hog pen. Okay. All right. Well, she was killing people. Yeah. That checks out. So, <laughs> this guy's name is Ole. O-L-E. Ole. Ole B. Budsberg. And <laughs> Stop it. Stop <laughs> it. Not kidding. Ole B. Budsberg. All right. O-L-E. Space. B period. Space. Budsburg. <laughs> That's unfortunate. <laughs> Your parents didn't love you. <laughs> God, you're so mean. Wow. Okay. Ole B. Budsburg, an elderly widower from Iola, Wisconsin, appeared next. He was last seen alive at the Laporte Savings Bank on April 6, 1907, when he mortgaged his Wisconsin land there, signing over a deed and obtaining several thousand dollars in cash. So, Budsberg's sons, Oscar and Matthew, had no idea that their father had gone off to visit Belgunis. When they finally discovered his destination, they wrote to her, and she promptly responded, saying she'd never seen their father. Oh, my God. Several other middle-aged men appeared and disappeared in brief visits to the Gunnis farm throughout 1907. Then, in December of 1907... Andrew Helgelian, uh, yep, Andrew Helgelian, a bachelor farmer from Aberdeen, South Dakota, wrote to her and was warmly received. The pair exchanged many letters until, until a letter that overwhelmed him, written in Bell's own careful handwriting and dated January 13th, 1908. This was later found at the Helgelian farm. Helgelian? Helgelian Farm. It read, To the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person, and you I like better than anyone in the world I know. 
Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song, it is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you. My Andrew, I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. Okay. That's intense as fuck. A little bit. I feel quite uncomfortable with that. In response to her letter, Helgelian flew to her side in January of 1908. He had with him a check for $2,900, his savings, which he had drawn from his local bank. A few days after Andrew arrived, he and Belle appeared at the savings bank in Laporte and deposited the check. Andrew vanished a few days later, but Belle appeared at the savings bank to make a $500 deposit and another deposit of $700 in the state bank. At this time, she started to have problems with Ray Lamphier. In March of 1908, Belle sent several letters to a farmer and horse dealer in Topeka, Kansas, named Lon Townsend, inviting him to visit her. He decided to put off the visit until spring and thus did not see her before a fire at her farm. Gunnis was also in correspondence with a man from Arkansas and sent him a letter dated May 4th, 1908. He would have visited her, but did not because of the fire at her farm. And Gunnis allegedly promised marriage to a suitor, Bert Albert, which did not go through because of his lack of wealth. Oh, mm. mm-hmm. Greedy bitch. Yeah. So the hired hand, Ray Lamphere, he was deeply in love with Belle Gunnis. He performed any chore for her, no matter how gruesome, and he became jealous of the many men who arrived to court his employer, and he began making scenes. She fired him on February 3rd of 1908, and shortly after dispensing... Wait, what the fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, what the fuck? Shortly after parting ways with Lamphere, she presented herself at the Laporte Courthouse. She declared that her former employee was not in his right mind and that he was a menace to the public. She somehow convinced local authorities to hold a sanity hearing. Uh, Ray Lamphere was pronounced sane and released. Shocker. Right? Belle was back a few days later to complain to the sheriff that Ray had visited her farm and argued with her. She contended that he posed a threat to her family and had Ray Lamphere arrested for trespassing. Oh, my God. He returned again and again to see her, but she drove him away each time. He made some thinly disguised threats. Um, On one occasion, he confided to farmer William Slater, Helgelian won't bother me no more. We fixed him for keeps. Helgelian had long since disappeared from the precincts of Laporte, or so it was believed. However, Andrew's brother was disturbed when he failed to return home, and so his brother wrote to Bell in Indiana asking about Andrew's whereabouts. Bell wrote back and told Asla Helgelian that his brother was not at her farm and probably went to Norway to visit his relatives. Oh, yeah, because why would he tell his brother? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Asley wrote back saying that he did not believe his brother would do that. Moreover, he believed that his brother was still in the Laporte area, the last place he was seen or heard of. Bell played it totally cool and said, totally fine. If you want to come here and uh, look for your brother, I'll help you conduct a search. But I do want to let you know that it's expensive. So if I, oh if she was going to help with that manhunt, that he had better be willing to pay her some money. Of course. Yeah. So he did decide to come to Laporte, but not until May. Now, since Ray Lamphere had been fired and presumably knew about the fates of all of those men who had come to the farm, she saw him as a huge threat, right? Yeah. So she went to her lawyer, um, and his name was M. E. Leeliter. Yeah. M. E. Leeliter, that she feared for her life and the, the lives of her children. Uh, Ray, she said, had threatened to kill her and burn her house down. She wanted to make a will in case uh, Ray went through with his threats, which, as we know from earlier parts of the story, her house does eventually catch on fire. So her lawyer drew up a will, and Belle left her entire estate to her children and then left her lawyer's office. She went to one of her banks that was holding the mortgage for her property and paid it off completely. She did not go to the police to tell them about the allegedly life-threatening conduct of Ray Lamphere, and the reason for this is obviously that there had been no threats and she was setting the stage for her own arson. Yes. So she had hired another farmhand to take the place of Ray named Joe Maxson, and he was hired in February of 1908. And he awoke in the early hours of April 28, 1908, smelling smoke in his room, which was on the second floor of Bell Gunness's house. He opened the hall door to a sheet of flames. Maxon screamed her name and those of her children, but got no response. He slammed the door and then, in his underwear, leapt from the second-story window of his room, barely surviving the fire that was closing in around him. He raced to town to get help, but by the time the old-fashioned hook and ladder arrived at the farm it, at early dawn, the farmhouse was a gutted heap of smoking ruins. Jesus. Four bodies were found inside the house. One of the bodies was that of a woman who could not be immediately identified as Belle Gunness since she had no head. Oh, oh, oh. So I don't even know how to respond. The head has never been found to that body. Okay. Uh, the bodies of her children were found still in their beds. County Sheriff Smutzer had somehow heard about Ray Lamphere's alleged threats, even though she didn't report she, it. Yeah, hadn't reported that to the police, just like word of mouth got around. Yeah, small town. And so he took one look at the house and quickly sought out Ray Lamphere. Bell's lawyer came forward to recount his tale about why she created a will and how she had feared that Ray would kill her and her family and burn her house down. Hang on. Oh, this sucks. Ray Lamphere did not help his cause much when he was approached. At the moment that Sheriff Smutzer confronted him, before an, a word was uttered by the lawman, 
Ray goes, did Widow Gunnis and the kids get out all right? Oh, my God. He was then told about the fire, but he denied having anything to do with it, claiming that he was not near the farm when the blaze occurred. So a young boy, John Solium, was brought forward. He said that he'd been watching the Gunnis place and that he saw Lamphere running down the road from the Gunnis house just before the structure erupted in flames. Ray Lamphere snorted to the boy, you wouldn't look me in the eye and say that. Oh my god. Yes, I will, replied Solium. You found me hiding behind the bushes and you told me you'd kill me if I didn't get out of there. Ray was arrested and charged with murder and arson. Then, scores of investigators, sheriff's deputies, coroner's men, and many volunteers began to search the ruins for evidence. The body of the headless woman was of deep concern to the Laporte residents. C. Christofferson, a neighboring farmer. I love how no one in these old stories has a fucking first name. It's just always initials. M.E. Leeliter. C. Christofferson. We didn't need him back then. Everybody knew everybody by their last name. I mean, geez, just use a first name. Your mom picked it out for a reason. It's probably Chris Christofferson. That's why he went by C, because it was fucking Chris Chris was his name. Who knows? Well, that neighboring farmer took one look at the charred remains of the body and said, that's not Belgunas. Another farmer, L. Nicholson, also agreed And so did Mrs. Austin Cutler, God forbid she have a name, an old friend of Guinness. Gunness, god damn it. (laughs) I'm doing great, y'all. Doing great. If you only knew the things we had to cut from this episode. Y'all don't know. So two neighboring farmers and a friend agreed, this is not Belle Gunness. Um, more of Bell's old friends, Mrs. May Olander and Mr. Sigward Olson, arrived from Chicago. They examined the remains of the headless woman and also said, that ain't Bell. Doctors then measured the remains and making allowances for the missing neck and head, stated the corpse was of a woman who stood five foot three. Oh my God, you idiot. Why would you pick such a small person? Sorry. (laughs) You're fine. And weighed no more than 150 pounds. But you were over 250. Yeah. Friends and neighbors, as well as the Laporte clothiers, who made her dresses and other garments, swore that Gunnis was taller than (laughs) 5'8". And definitely weighed more than 150 (laughs) pounds. All of this feels real rude as I'm reading this. But also not From my own weight class. I don't know what I'm going for there. (laughs) Detailed measurements of the body were compared with those on file with several Laporte stores where she purchased apparel. When the measurements were compared, authorities concluded that the headless woman could not have possibly been Belle Gunness. God forbid seven people tell you that's definitely not her and you still are very sure it is. (sighs) Dr. J. Myers examined the internal organs of the dead woman. He sent stomach contents of the victim to a pathologist in Chicago who reported months later that the organs contained lethal doses of strychnine. Oh, 
I'm so surprised. Hmm. So, Bell's dentist, Dr. Ira P. Norton, someone with a first name, said that if the teeth or dental work of the headless corpse had been located, he could definitely ascertain if it was Bell. Remember, we already fucking know it's not. Yeah, no. So, basically, they hired a guy who was a former miner to build a sluice and start sifting through all of the... You know what a sluice is? All of the the ash? Yeah. Yep, all the debris. Oh my gosh. Um, As more bodies become unearthed on this farm, the sluice was used to isolate human remains on a larger scale. I bet. Yeah. On May 19th, 1908, a piece of bridge work was found consisting of two human canine teeth, their roots still attached, porcelain teeth, and gold crown work in between. Dr. Norton identified them as work done for Gunnis. As a result, Coroner Charles Mack officially concluded that the adult female body discovered in the ruins must have been Belle Gunnis. Stop it! Yeah. A five foot three. Yeah. Oh my God. So, Asla Hegelian, Helgelian? Yeah. Asla Helgelian arrived in Laporte and told Sheriff Smutzer that he believed his brother had met with foul play at Bell Gunnis' hands. Then, Joe Maxson came forward with information that could not be ignored. He told the sheriff that Gunnis had ordered him to bring loads of dirt by the wheelbarrow to a large area surrounded by a high wire fence where the hogs were fed. Maxson said that there were many deep depressions in the ground that had been covered by dirt. These filled in holes, Gunnis had told Maxson, contained rubbish. Just some garbage. I just wanted to bury this out here, this garbage. It was people's. Yeah, so she wanted the ground made level, so he filled in the depressions. Sheriff Smutzer took a dozen men back to the farm and began to dig. On May 3rd, 1908, the diggers unearthed the body of Jenny Olson. Then they found small bodies of two unidentified children. Aww. Subsequently, the body of Andrew Helgelian was unearthed. His overcoat was found to be worn by Ray Lamphere. Like, Ray had his coat. That's upsetting. Yeah. As days progressed and the gruesome work continued, one body after another was discovered in Gunnis' hog pen. So now I'm going to be telling you about the people that were found. So, Ole B. Budsberg of Iola, Wisconsin, who vanished in May of 07. Thomas Lindbow who had left Chicago and gone to work as a hired man for Gunnis three years earlier. Henry Gerholt of Scandinavia, Wisconsin, who had gone to wed her a year earlier, taking $1,500 to her, which, remember, is like yeah. over thirty grand. That's probably closer to forty. The pay oh. off the house guy, right? No, oh, different one. Sorry. My yeah, no, apologies. completely different one. We're getting there, though. Um, a watch corresponding to one belonging to Gerholt uh, Ger was found with a body. Um, Olaf Sven, 
Olaf Svenhurud from Chicago, John Moe of Elbow Lake, Minnesota. His watch was found in Ray Lamphere's possession. Olaf Lindblom, age 35, from Wisconsin. Reports of other possible victims began to come in. William Mingay, a coachman of New York City who had left that city on April 1st, 1904. Herman Konitzer of Chicago, who disappeared in January of 1906. Charles Edmond of New Carlisle, Indiana. George Berry of Tuscola, Illinois. Christy Hilkven of Dover, Barron County, Wisconsin, who sold his farm and came to Laporte oh, yeah. in 1906. Charles Nieberg, a 28-year-old Scandinavian immigrant who lived in Philadelphia, told friends that he was going to visit Gunnis in June of 1906 and never came back. He'd been working for a saloon keeper and took $500 with him. John... Christ. That kind of name, huh? His last name is McJunkin. (laughs) (laughs) These names, man. What the fuck? I want the last name McJunkin. (laughs) I sorely missed out as a child. You sure did. Born under the wrong family. John H. McJunkin of Coropolis, which is near Pittsburgh, left his wife in December of 1906 after corresponding with a Laporte woman. my gosh. Olaf Jensen. That's the third Olaf, P.S. Olaf Jensen, a Norwegian immigrant of Carroll, Indiana, wrote his relatives in 1906 that he was going to marry a wealthy widow in Laporte. Oh, shocker. Henry Bisgy of Laporte, who disappeared in June 1906, and his hired hand named Edward Canary of Pink Lake, Illinois, who also vanished in 1906. Bert Chase of Mishawaka, Indiana, sold his butcher shop and told friends of a wealthy widow and that he was going to look her up. His brother received a telegram, supposedly, from Aberdeen, South Dakota, claiming Bert had been killed in a train wreck. His brother investigated and found the telegram was fictitious. I know, Lav. It's a lot of effort. Yeah. Taunus Peterson Lean of Rushford, Minnesota, is alleged to have disappeared on April 2nd, 1907. A gold ring marked S.B. May 28, 1907, was found in the ruins. A hired man named George Bradley of Tuscola, Illinois, is alleged to have gone to Laporte to meet a widow and three children in October 1907. T.J. Tiefland of Minneapolis is alleged to have come see Gunnis in 1907. Frank Reedinger, a farmer of Waukesha, Wisconsin, came to Indiana in 1907 to marry and never returned. Emil Tell, a Swede from Kansas City, Missouri, is alleged to have gone in 1907 to Laporte. Was that just her busiest year? I guess, for fuck's sake. Lee Porter of Bartonville, Oklahoma, separated from his wife and told his brother he was going to marry a wealthy widow in Laporte. Oh my god. John E. Hunter left Duquesne, Pennsylvania on November 25th, 1907, after telling his daughters he was going to marry a wealthy widow in northern Indiana. Two other Pennsylvanians, George Williams of Wapawalopen and Ludwig Stahl of Mount Yeager, Yeager? 
Mount Jaeger, also left their homes to marry in the West. Since when is Indiana the West? It's in the Eastern time zone. Whatever. <laughs> Abraham Phillips, a railway man of Burlington, West Virginia, left in the winter of 1907 to go to northern Indiana and marry a rich widow. A railway watch was found in the debris of the house. Benjamin Carling of Chicago, Illinois, was last seen by his wife in 1907 after telling her that he was going to Laporte to secure an investment with a rich widow. He had with him $1,000 from an insurance company and borrowed money from several investors as well. In June 1908, his widow was able to identify his remains from Laporte's Pauper's Cemetery by the contour of his skull and three missing teeth. Oh, jeez. This person's name is... A-U-G period, so I'm going to go with Augustus or August Gunderson of Green Lake, Wisconsin. Ole Olison of Battle Creek, Michigan. Lindner Nicholson of Huron, South Dakota. Andrew Anderson of Lawrence, Kansas. Johan Sorensen of St. Joseph, Missouri. A possible victim was a man named Hinckley. Oh my God. Reported unnamed victims were, yeah, I'm not done. Oh my God. A daughter of Mrs. H. Weitzer of Toledo, Ohio, who had attended Indiana University near Laporte in 1902. An unknown man and woman are alleged to have disappeared in September 1906, the same night Jenny Olson went missing. Gunnis claimed they were a Los Angeles professor and his wife, who had taken Jenny to California. A brother of Miss Jenny Graham of Waukesha, Wisconsin, who had left her to marry a rich widow in Laporte but vanished. A hired man from Ohio, age 50, name unknown, is alleged to have disappeared and Gunnis became the heir to his horse and buggy. Of course she did. Yeah. An unnamed man from Montana told people at a resort he was going to sell Gunnis his horse and buggy, which were found with several other horses and buggies at the farm. Most of the remains found on the property could not be identified. Because of the crude recovery methods, the exact number of individuals unearthed on the Gunnis farm is unknown, but is believed to be approximately 12. On May 19, 1908, Remains of approximately seven unknown victims were buried in two coffins in unmarked graves in the Pauper's section of Laporte's Pine Lake Cemetery. Andrew Helgalian and Jenny Olson are buried in Laporte's Patton Cemetery near Peter Gunnis. So now we're going to talk about Ray's trial. Holy fuck. Uh-huh. Okay, I'm prepared. Ray Lamphere was arrested on May 22, 1908, and tried for murder and arson. He denied the charges of arson and murder that were filed against him. His defense hinged on the assertion that the body was not Gunnis's. Lamphere's lawyer, Wirt Worden, I know, man, it's this whole case. <laughs> so bad. W-I-R-T, Wirt, and W-O-R-D-E-N, Worden. Wirt Worden. Developed evidence that contradicted Norton's identification of the teeth and bridgework. A local jeweler testified that though the gold in the bridgework had emerged from the fire almost undamaged, that the heat of the flames 
It did melt other items that had like gold plating and several watches, gold jewelry, whatever, like had melted. But this was perfectly fine. Hmm. Yeah. Local doctors replicated the conditions of the fire by attaching a similar piece of dental bridgework to a human jawbone and placing it in a blacksmith's forge. The real teeth crumbled and disintegrated. The porcelain teeth came out pocked and pitted with the gold parts rather melted. Both the artificial elements were damaged to a greater degree than those in the bridgework offered as evidence of Gunnis's identity. The hired hand, Joe Maxson, and another man also testified that they'd seen Klondike Schultz. <laughs> Sorry, I can't. The dentist take the bridge work out of his pocket and plant it just before it was quote unquote discovered. Ray Lamphere was found guilty of arson, but acquitted of murder. On November 26, 1908, he was sentenced to 20 years in the state prison in Michigan City. He died of tuberculosis on December 30th, 1909. So he was not in prison very long. No. I feel like tuberculosis went through the prisons pretty fast back then. Probably. I, that's a huge blind spot in my learning. No fucking clue. <laughs> There's so much with this case, girl. Yeah. My mind is blown. Oh, okay. I'm not even done. Girl! I fucking wish! There's that much? There's a little more. Okay. On January... Okay. On January 14th, 1910, the Reverend E.A. Shell came forward with a confession that Ray Lamphere was said to have made to him while the clergyman was con- comforting the dying man. In it, Ray revealed Belle Gunnis' crimes and swore that she was still alive. Ray Lamphere had stated to the Reverend Shell and to a fellow convict, Harry Myers, shortly before his death, that he had not murdered anyone, but that he had helped Gunnis bury many of her victims. When a victim arrived, she made him comfortable, charming him and cooking a large meal. She would then drug his coffee, and when the man was in a stupor, she split his head with a meat chopper. Ugh! Sometimes she would simply wait for the suitor to go to bed and then enter the bedroom by candlelight and chloroform her sleeping victim. And smile at them? I guess. (laughs) She was probably so excited. I mean, she clearly liked this. Clearly unhinged. Yeah. A powerful woman, Gunnis would then carry the body to the basement, place it on a table, and dissect it. Oh... She then bundled the remains and buried those in the hog pen and the grounds about the house. Belle had become an expert at dissection thanks to the instruction she received from her second husband, the butcher, Peter Gunnis. To save time, she sometimes poisoned her victim's coffee with strychnine. She also varied her disposal methods, sometimes dumping the body into the hog scalding vat and covering the remains with quicklime. Ray stated that sometimes if Belle was overly tired after murdering one of her victims, she merely chopped up the remains and, in the middle of the night, stepped into her hog pen and fed the body to the hogs. Well, hogs eat bones. Anything. Yeah. It's so fucking creepy and scary. That's why I was surprised she didn't feed them all. Yeah. To her hogs. Yeah. That's where I thought it was going with buying a hog thing. I thought so, too. Apparently not. Okay. 
So Ray also cleared up the mysterious question of the headless female corpse found in the smoking ruins of the home. Bell had lured this woman from Chicago on the pretense of hiring her as a housekeeper just days before she decided to make her permanent escape from Laporte. Bell, according to Ray, had drugged the woman and bashed her head in, decapitating her body and taking the head, which had weights tied to it, to a swamp where she threw it in deep water. Oh my god. Then she chloroformed her children, <sighs> smothered them all to death, and dragged their small bodies along with the headless corpse to the basement. She dressed the female corpse in her old clothing and removed her false teeth, placing these beside the headless corpse to assure it being identified as Belgunis. I take issue with that statement Considering merely because it had roots on some of the fucking teeth. So it was something. I don't know what the fuck it was, well, but I that, don't think then, it was her teeth. And then his lawyer said, had brought witnesses to state that that couldn't have been correct. Yeah. Like it could not have been there. Um, also earlier they did say they found the children in their beds and yeah. his says that she took them to the basement. So that's also a difference right there. Um, so then bell torched the house and fled. Ray had helped her. He admitted, but she had not left by the road where he waited for her after the fire had been set. She betrayed her one-time partner in crime in the end by cutting across open fields and disappearing into the woods. Some accounts suggest that Ray admitted that he took her to Stillwell, a town that's like nine miles from Laporte, and saw her off on a train to Chicago. Ray Lamphere said that Belle Gunness was a rich woman and that she had murdered 42 men by his count, perhaps more, and she had taken amounts from them ranging from 1000 to 32000 She had allegedly accumulated more than $250,000 through her murder schemes over the years. A huge fortune for those days. In today's money, that's over $7 million. What the fuck did she do with this money? What did she do? Yeah. She had a small amount remaining in one of her savings accounts, but local banks later admitted that she had indeed withdrawn most of her funds shortly before the fire. Shocker. The fact that Gunnis withdrew most of her money suggested that she was planning to evade the law. Duh. Oh, really? Duh. Gunnis was, for several decades, allegedly seen or sighted in cities and towns throughout the United States. Friends, acquaintances, and amateur detectives apparently spotted her on the streets of Chicago, San Francisco, New York, and Los Angeles. She could have went to any of those without amount of money. Correct. As late as 1931, Gunnis was reported alive and living in a Mississippi town where she supposedly owned a great deal of property and lived a life of luxury. Smutzer, for more than 20 years, received an average of two reports a month. That was the sheriff. She became part of American criminal folklore, a female bluebeard. She's been called Hell's Bell, which I like. While the three children in the house were identified as her children, um, the headless adult found with them was never positively identified. Um, Belle Gunness' fate is truly unknown. Laporte residents were divided between believing that she was killed by Ray Lamphere and that she faked her own death. In 1931, a woman known as 
Esther Carlson was arrested in Los Angeles for poisoning August Lindstrom for money. Two people who had known Gunnis claimed to recognize her from photographs, but the identification was never proven. Carlson died while awaiting trial. Um, this is the very last thing. The body believed to be that of Belle Gunnis originally was buried next to her first husband at Forest Home Cemetery in Forest Park, Illinois. On November 5th, 2007, with the permission of descendants of Bell's sister, the headless body was exhumed from Gunnis's grave in Forest Home Cemetery by a team of forensic anthropologists and graduate students from the University of Indianapolis in an effort to learn her true identity. It was initially hoped that a sealed envelope flap on a letter found at the victim's farm would contain enough DNA to be compared to that of the body but unfortunately, there was not enough DNA, and it was so old that it was not um, reliable for comparison. So we still Bummer. don't know who that woman is, and we don't know whatever happened to Belle Gunness. That bitch ran. A hundred percent. That bitch took off. She left with her $7 million and was like, bye. Fuck y'all. Fuck her. Seriously. Oh, my God. 42. My mind is fucked. Yeah, I told you it was bad and long. was very long. Very long. But it was just upsetting. How long do you think we've had this recording? An hour. An hour ten. All right, I'm ready to stop talking. Are you sure? So sure that I'm not going to stop talking. <laughs> You're not. No. <laughs> no, I'm going to have so much commentary. Oh, my God. Okay. All right, so Is let's... Is my heat on? I don't know. Oh, my God. Yeah, look, they're flying. I was like, what the fuck? You ready for my baby case? Oh, my God. For a second, I just thought you meant it was about babies. And I was like, no. No, it's not about babies. Yeah, but I you meant, meant short. tiny, short case. Yes, yes, I'm ready. Do you have the recording going? Oh, yeah, it's going. It has not stopped. Oh, I thought you paused it for some reason. I thought I was going to, and then I did not. Okay. Jaden Rihanna Parkinson was born in September 1996 in Folkestone, Shepway District, Kent, England, to parents Samantha Shrewsbury and Paul Parkinson. Great name. Which one? Shrewsbury? Samantha. Oh, <laughs> my bad. She actually went by Sam, though. So that's how I'll refer to her going forward. Okay. So, sorry. No, that's fine. Okay. Um, when Jane was seven, her parents split up, and she was placed outside the home. Whether she went with her father or she was placed in a different home, I don't know for sure. I just know that she didn't live with her mom again until she was 13. Okay. Um, Jane went to an all-girls school, and she was known to be a little wild. Ooh. She enjoyed partying with her friends and laughing a ton. At 15, Jane met a man named Ben Blakely. Ben was 20 years old, and they met through Ben's younger brother, Jake. No, 15, yep. 20, not, no. Well, Ben told Jane's mom, Sam, not to worry. He wouldn't date Jane until she was at least 16. No. She, no. She, she seemed okay with that, I guess. He, he Listen, stuck to his word. Sam, you're fucking up everything for us. Samantha's over here. Stop it. Yeah. She, it. Sam said, at first he seemed nice. He was polite like any other lad. Then I heard a rumor that he decapitated a cat and put the head on a girl's pillow. But I dismissed it as hearsay. No. You can't. Okay. okay. Yep. Yep. I'm listening. A few months into the relationship, her friends and family started to see a change. One night, Jane went out with a few friends, specifically black guys. 
Sam recalls Jaden running down the stairs to talk to Ben after getting back with the men and coming back upstairs with a bruise on her face, which she told her mom came from Ben. It was the first time her mother found out about the abuse, but it wasn't the first time he'd hurt her. Oh, my God. Sam claimed he murdered our pregnant cat and showed it to her. Her being Jaden. Saying that's what would happen to her family if she didn't keep in line. What? Later on, he killed another one of our cats and left it on our doorstep where my partner and his son found it. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, Jaden changed even more, which, no shit. With everything going on, I don't fucking doubt it. Yeah. She's a child. What the fuck? With a psychopath for a boyfriend. Yeah. Um, she started stealing from her mom and her mom's partner, Dean, and selling the belongings. They believed to pay for Ben's drug and his drug debts, which, oh, yeah, forgot to mention, super into drugs. Ben was. Okay. Super into drugs. Which, which drugs? Curious. That I don't know. Oh, okay. Mm, just just probably all of them. He's Got a it. great fella. Yeah, okay. Um, Jaden began disappearing for days on end and then coming home looking rough. One night, Sam got a call from Jaden's friend saying Jaden had shown her burn marks on her chest and bruises on her body. Oh, no. Her friend said Sam needed to seriously talk to her about Ben um, because she was super concerned. Um, yeah. Yeah. I would be. Well, that night when Jaden got home, this is her mom's commentary. Okay. She said, I made her, no, I made Jaden strip to her underwear, but I couldn't see anything. It wasn't until after she died that I found out that I couldn't see it because the injuries were underneath her bra and knickers. Oh. Yeah. That's horrible. Sam told Jaden she needed to leave Ben, even though she didn't see those marks. She knew that this wasn't a healthy fucking relationship. Yeah. Um, she didn't. So Sam locked her out one night and Jane slept on the front porch. She tried everything she could to get her to stop seeing Ben. She said she didn't have a clue what to do to save her daughter. She tried tough love. She tried talking to her. The fighting was nonstop. She ended up kicking Jaden out of the house, which oh Jaden, surprise, surprise, went to move in with mm, Ben. Of course. Ben lived with his cousin in Reading. His cousin called Sam as well, stating Ben was beating Jaden in the toilet on a daily basis. Oh, my God. He would lock her in when he went out, and at one point, she phoned social services, and they were feeding her through the window. <gasps> because Shut he wasn't up. letting her eat. What the fuck? Yeah. In October 2013, Sam rescued her daughter from Ben's house, um, got her to come back into her home. She confiscated her phone and banned her from going out. But within days, Jaden was hiding in the bathroom mm. with a phone, talking Great. to her abuser. Um, <sighs> her mom told her, you've got two choices, either the phone in him or safety in here. And she took the phone and went. No. In November of 2013, Jane split with Ben okay. and moved to a hostel in Oxford that was for troubled teens. Okay. But he still had his hold on her. Yeah. He told her that he would kill her if she left her room in the hostel. So she was so terrified, she wouldn't even go out to use the restroom. Oh she God. was urinating in plastic bottles in her bedroom. Oh, my God. Yeah. Shortly after leaving Ben, he told her that he had nude photos of her getting out of the shower and threatened to post them all online. 
in hopes that she would kill herself. Oh my fucking God. Jaden reported it to the police and that's when conversations with Ben stopped. So one night in December, Jaden called her mom no less than 40 times. Oh, her mom called her back and Jaden was happy to say she was pregnant. Yeah. No. On December 3rd, her mama, um, on December 3rd, her mom met up with her at a local pub and Jaden was so happy. She told her mom she couldn't move back in with her yet because she did was, she didn't think it was going to be safe and she didn't want to bring that trouble to her doorstep. Okay. She wasn't going to go back to Ben, but she felt she needed to contact him to let him know she was pregnant. No. Yeah. Ben had two previous children with two different women, but he wasn't allowed to see them because of his violence. That's always what you want in a father. Yep. So, in England, when a spouse or a one of the two parents has like such violence on their records they're known as the child is known as being at risk and they'll take it away so they would have taken her child away if she went with him which i didn't know i didn't know either but that's awesome that's yeah um on the same day she met with her mom uh at the pub that was the same day she informed ben of her pregnancy Hostile workers reported that they overheard Jaden on the phone with Ben telling him she was pregnant and him threatening to throw her off a bridge. The workers begged Jaden not to meet up with him, but that night she left and she never returned. Oh my God. That night, the couple was caught on a camera passing through Didcot. Where? Uh, Didcot station, which if that's wrong, listeners, let me know. Um, On the same camera... Ben was seen returning to the station later that day, but Jaden wasn't with him. So now I'm going to tell you what this piece of shit did. He took the pregnant teen to a remote barn surrounded by farmland where he stomped on her head so hard she had a footprint under her skin. He then strangled her three times, letting her come back around two times before finally killing her. Oh my God, how terrifying. He then stashed her body under brambles and went home. The fuck? Uh, the following day, the hostel rang Sam and also called the police to report Jaden missing. But nothing was done. Because she was a troubled teen. Sam approached a missing persons charity who helped her print and distribute her own photos of her daughter. On December 9th, Ben borrowed a blue suitcase from his grand and returned to the crime scene. No. He shoved Jaden's body into the case to move it to All Saints Church. Oh, my God. To where, a church? Where his uncle was buried <gasps> and called a taxi. The taxi driver later revealed he helped Ben load the case into the boot and remarked how heavy it was. Oh, my God. His grand remarked he came back a few hours later and the suitcase... He, his grand remarked he came back a few hours later with the suitcase and threw it in the shed and it was covered in mud. Oh. He had... Buried, buried her with his uncle. Yeah. In his uncle's grave. Yeah. Even with the evidence and reports of abuse, it wasn't until December 13th, 10 days after she disappeared, that the police finally arrested Ben Blakely on suspicion of murder. Wow. So they quickly established that Jaden had died in the barn, but they couldn't find her body. 
Um, a search of his grandmother's house also revealed two spades that were covered in the same thick mud as the blue suitcase from the taxi. Mm-hmm. Police then commissioned an RAF helicopter to fly over the area. Royal taking... Air Force. Okay. Police then commissioned a Royal Air Force helicopter to fly over the area taking aerial shots of to check out areas that had been recently dug up. Yeah. And the pictures were sent to a forensic archaeologist who spotted disturbances at All Saints Church where Blakely's uncle was buried. Yeah. Holy shit. A local resident called authorities and reported they saw Jake, Ben's brother, who introduced them, mm-hmm. disposing of Ben's clothes. Fuck. Jake was arrested and faced with a murder charge and scared shitless. He revealed he knew Jaden was buried in his uncle's grave. Oh, my God. In July 2014... Ben Blakely was jailed for life with the minimum recommendation of only 20 years. <gasps> what? 20 years for killing his pregnant girlfriend. I just can't. And I highly doubt, but I, but I doubt he's going to be like a prime. If life inmate. starts at conception, he killed two people. Sarah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Okay. Um, moving on. Um. So during his trial, several ex-girlfriends testified against Ben, saying he had been controlling and had punched and choked them. Oh, my God. Two of his exes gave evidence from behind screens because they were so scared of him. Holy shit. He has strangled every one of them at (gasps) one point. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. If someone... Oh, my God. I cannot imagine. I know. I was just going to say, I can't imagine the fear. No. Just so much fear. Mm-mm. And I'm sorry. I'm just going to say this, and this is upsetting, but I can't imagine what that poor girl went through as she was dying. No. The man that she had been with, she was having his child, mm-hmm. and he kept bringing her back. That's what's upsetting. That's fucking like, purposeful. Like, that's that's hate. Yeah. Like, you're a piece of shit. Yeah. I hope he dies. Anyways, um... Jaden's mom is now working trying to get a registry set up for individuals who have been arrested for domestic abuse, like sex offenders are. Yeah. She thinks that it should be easily accessible for the public to find out if someone was arrested for domestic violence. I think that'd be fucking brilliant. She said maybe she could have looked into it and saved her daughter before it all started. Yeah. But then again, like teenagers, you can't, you can't fucking stop teens. You have no control over them. Well, no, but if you can at least prove that this adult, this that's at least knowledge, old. you know. Yeah. So that's the story of Jaden Parkinson. And not that it's important in any way, shape, or form. But she was gorgeous. Yeah. Gorgeous. <sighs> yeah. Fuck that guy. Fuck Ben. Right? Who hurt you? Right? During his brother's trial, like, friends came on and said, like, he threatened his brother all the time. And he was, like, super abusive to his brother. Jesus. Which I believe he was arrested for, I think, three years for his, whatever, involvement. Yeah. But, yeah. Sorry. All right. Well, that's that's my case. Wow. Um, All right. Let's go get a drink. Yeah, let's go get a drink and come back. Yep, we will. 
That's a secret. Yeah, that's a, a personal thing for me to talk about in therapy. therapy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll tell I'll tell Stella tomorrow. Um okay. So I'm going to see Taylor Swift. And so I have a ticket that I've had since the beginning to go see her in Chicago. Well, I live in Dallas. So to go see her in Chicago, it's gonna be a trip, and that's fine. I'm gonna go see my family. I'm excited to go. Well, you were horrified that you weren't going to have any ticket. I thought you were going to go yes. into a deep depression. So I was very upset when I thought I was not going to have a ticket. Like, your girl is signing up for a Capital One credit card specifically for Taylor Tours. Because she's oh. always partnered with them. So I will have one that I just don't use. But your girl's getting pre-verified next time. There's no fucking way I want to be in this position again. This sucked. Because I could have paid way less for the seat that I'm going to be in. So, in any case, doesn't fucking matter. I'm very excited to go to the show in Chicago, and I've been thinking about my outfit, but that show is not until June 3rd. So, I have plenty of time to think about an outfit. I have other things in my mind right now, like have not been thinking about it whatsoever. But I just realized I could look for a ticket to Dallas um, on like SeatGeek, and so I did. As I mentioned, I paid more than I probably should have. We won't talk about it. Nope. But the thing is, I've never been to a Taylor concert. Over the course of my entire life, I hardly ever go to concerts. I don't spend money on this type of thing. And I really want to see her like at her own tour. And I want to see her up close. As I mentioned, I'm very excited to see her in Chicago with my siblings. That's going to be like the fucking best but also, but I also want to see her up close and I had an opportunity and it was here. So like I bought the ticket and then I was like, oh fuck, I have 22 days to get my outfit like locked and everyone, I don't know if everyone listening knows Swifties dress up for the tour. Like people always dress up in like some sort of costume. I'm sure other artists have people that do that as well. I'm not saying it's unique. I'm just saying that's part of the culture, and so that's what I wanted to do. And so I've been planning an outfit lightly in my head, but now I have to make it happen in three weeks because I'm so convinced that I'm going to get picked to get have a meet and greet <laughs> with Taylor Swift. It's not going to happen. For everyone listening, it's not going to happen, but I'm manifesting that it will privately. I still can't convince myself that you're not going to cry if that does happen. Uh, yeah, I probably, probably will. Like, I've thought about it more. Like, I'm probably just going to cry being there. Like, concerts, I get emotional watching performers. Oh, I don't have that. I don't have that emotional capacity, so. Well, yeah, like, I get emotional when I watch people's performance for the first time. Like, when I watched Reputation, the stadium tour. When I watched Gaga, five foot two. When I watched Adele, all of it. Did you cry? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Like, it makes okay, me see, very emotional not... seeing people perform their craft and perform it well. Like when I saw, oh my God, what was her name? Who do you think you are running around leaving scars? Christina Perry. Yes. Christina Perry. She, I cried watching her play because her voice just had such clarity and it was just, it was so gorgeous. Like her voice, I was just like entranced. And yeah, so watching people perform makes me emotional. So I'm pretty sure I'm going to cry just because she's performing and that's exciting for me. So I got floor, I got a floor seat. I know. To see her here in Dallas. Yeah. 
I'm so excited. I'm now like, oh my God, where the fuck am I going to park? I'm going to have to drive home afterward, meaning I'm going to have to sit in traffic afterward, which is fine. I'll be on such a fucking high. I'll probably call everyone I know. I'll probably call you and be like, Sarah, just listen. I'm going to try not to be on my phone as much as possible. Like, I know I'm going to want to record, like, if she comes to the part of the stage that's right in front of me, I'm obviously going to have my phone out and, like, film that if she's, like, that close. I know she won't be that close for most of the show. But I'm going to try to keep my phone away and, like, really be present, you know? I'm excited for you. This is like a dream come true for you. This literally is. I know. This is literally a dream come true. I know. I'm so happy for you. You're so happy. I'm, like, the most jazzed. I'm, like, I have minor anxiety going into it because I'm going by myself. But um, one of my Taylor groups on Facebook created a Discord specifically for the Dallas shows and so, like, you go in, and, like, I've I've marked down, like, what date I'm going to. My section is in, like, my name. And so, like, people are talking, like, where are you sitting? And so in on the Midnight's album, in You're On Your Own Kid, she talks about, so make the friendship bracelets, take a moment and take, whatever. Friendship bracelets. People are making, like, fuck tons of friendship bracelets to, like, hand out and trade at these concerts. That's adorable. There's an entire section in this Discord about bracelets. Bracelet chat. Show them off. Like, wrist measurements. Like, what the fuck? So you're going to get this a friendship bracelet. This is so bracelet. cool. I hope so. I'm not going to have any to hand out. Why not? Are you serious? Taking on doing that as well as editing all this shit and, like, also practicing my makeup? <laughs> Fair. I haven't done makeup in so long. I'm worried I can't do it anymore. You can do your makeup. Jackson stood up to... I just got to tell you something cute he did. Oh, of course. He stood up today and said, Oh, my back hurts. Oh, I'm almost five. (laughs) I'm not even kidding you. I'm not even kidding you. And I was like, Oh, my my back hurts. I'm almost five. I was like, Dude, we're... Shut the fuck up. Shut up. I love Oh my god. I was like I love him so much. He's so extra. I'm almost five. (laughs) Where does he get this shit? I don't know. I don't. I don't fucking know, but he's hilarious to me. Oh my god, he's so funny. That's one of the things you would write down in the book. Yes. Yeah. I'm almost five. He was even like, (laughs) that's my favorite when he tries to act like one of us. Yeah. I'm just like, oh, honey. Like he wants to pretend he's grown up. Yes. You're not grown. It's very cute. Oh, I'm almost five. (laughs) Anyways, yeah. I wanted to tell you before I forgot, BJ saw it, thought it was hilarious too. Uh, The amount of things I bought for my new place. Yes. Went a little crazy. But it's all things that I actually need, like a king-size bed set now that I have a king-size bed. Yeah, kind um, of important. Uh, coasters, which yep. are mostly from my new desk, BJ's new desk. Um, a shade for in front of my window, because, like, not, like, my front door. Oh, a shade for that. Yeah, because, like, I'm actually, we, where we're setting my desk is different, so you'll have to see it. But anyways. Okay. I don't want people to be able to see in. No. It's like, it's very, it's not like, it's very clear glass. Like, you can see the fucking. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, that's not okay. Yeah. I also bought a pooper scooper. Because. Oh, yeah. To poop. Yeah. We need to pick up to poop. Yeah. This is a 
I was, machine. I was going to buy you one, right? Because uh, I kept this one. It's fine. You don't have to buy us a pooper scooper. Okay. They're okay. not expensive. Okay. Oh my God. Do you know what I want? Two million dollars. Yes. I changed my mind. <laughs> <laughs> What was your real answer? I said Jimmy John's. Oh, I like my answer better. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, also. With a million dollars, I can have Jimmy John's and plenty of other things. It's valid. <laughs> um, I bought Amazon paper towels and Amazon toilet paper. Haven't used the toilet paper yet, but I can tell you I'm not a huge fan of paper towels. Ugh, that's annoying. Yeah, it makes me nervous about the toilet paper. Yeah. I need good toilet paper. Yeah. I don't want any... No. No risks breakthrough. are allowed when you use toilet paper. No. No breakthrough. Especially not when you wipe other people's asses. No. Like, I wipe Jackson's. Absolutely not. Yeah. I don't... I don't want... Nah. Yeah. Nah. No thanks. Yucky. Okay. So, one of the things that I... That is on, like, the back burner for what I'm going to wear... Hang on. Let me find it. Because... You know what I think you would... It's not a Taylor Swift dressed up thing, mm-hmm. but your emerald dress with fishnets. I thought, of, I thought about that with a sparkly cover up. So my black sparkly cover up could go over that. I'm a little worried about how hot the velvet might get, which is why I have the other dress coming because it's cotton. Mm. Yes. But yeah, that was my thought. I was like, because the, the duster from Katie's wedding, yeah. it's tight on my shoulders. So I found the same thing. Ordered a size larger and in the deep green. So that's oh. that one that's coming. The black one is like lined inside with like silk. Oh. So I don't know, but I thought that that might be kind of cute, potentially also with the green. But yeah, fishnets and then like my shoes. I'm highly considering that green one. I love that dress. Yeah, I looked through to see like, okay, before I buy shit, what should I do? Um, Hang on, I'll find it. It's on Cider. I don't know if you've seen ads for Cider on Facebook for, like, clothes. Nah, girl. If you don't, you will now, because I said it out loud in front of you. Um, Probs. And if I do, I'm going to screenshot it and send it to you right away. Yeah. Like, the, you bitch. Yeah, I bet it's in the morning. Almost guarantee. Is it already in my cart? Because that'd be embarrassing if I'm just, like, searching through this whole fucking website and I can't find it. Yeah, it's already in my cart. Um, This. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, like that with my gold snake earrings and then like, I mean, my black tennis shoes would not be my ideal. I'd probably order the gold sparkly shoes for my black and white ones that I get all the time. I'll probably get the gold ones and wear with that. That'd be really fucking cute. That would be really cute. only $36. I'm a little worried about the quality. I don't know that there's reviews on it really. Uh, There's a few. Oh yeah, there's 35 reviews. So... Yeah. End of story. Samantha's going to Taylor Swift and yeah. has issues finding her outfits. Yes. I can't fucking wait, though. I think it would be perfect. Oh, my God. It's full-on pants? Yeah. Is this person short? I thought it was like... I literally thought it was like... Um, oh, what are they Capri's? called? Gauchos. Yeah. No, I 100% knew those were pants. Yeah. Nope. I thought those were gauchos. The the perspective for me... Um, five, four... Ba, ba, ba. Yeah, I'm just like looking at people's pictures. Measurements. Yeah, the bust area seems a little short, so it sits more like a shelf bra. Ooh, so it's tittylicious. Perfect. Thank you for joining us on the Doom Crew today. We hope you enjoyed our spooky and humorous take on true crime. 
As always, we want to remind you to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Doom Crew Podcast. And don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Your feedback helps us improve the show and reach more listeners who share our spooky sense of humor. So until next time, stay curious, stay spooky, and remember to always look over your shoulder. This has been the Doom Crew, signing off. Can we just do one fucking take? (laughs) (laughs) No! Please, baby.